Good morning, family. My name is Brian. I'm going to be doing our scripture reading today from John chapter 6. If you're using the Pew Bibles, you'll find this on page 838. We're going to be looking at John chapter 6, verses 22 through 59. You can follow along or watch up on the screens. I am the bread of life. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must he do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent, whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do uh, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, 
you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This is God's word. Well, today's a big day in America, right? It's a big day in Pennsylvania. Even more specifically, today is a huge deal for a little town down the road called Philadelphia. If you aren't aware, tonight the Philadelphia Eagles take on the Kansas City Chiefs in Super Bowl 57. And I'm sure there are different levels of excitement here in the room about the game today. Some watch for the football, some watch for the halftime show, others for the commercials, and still others of you just show up to the Super Bowl parties for the food. Regardless, we tune into the Super Bowl because it's a spectacle. It steals our attention and it entertains. And every year we keep coming back more and more for this great American spectacle. We'll see in our passage this morning that the crowd had tuned into Jesus as we might tune into the Super Bowl. These people who just witnessed Jesus perform the miracle of feeding thousands from a little snack were back. And they were ready for more of the spectacle that had captured their attention. They were ready to be entertained. And if we aren't careful, we can make the same mistake. But first, before we get too far, let's pray and ask God to be our teacher this morning. Father, we come to you as people in need of bread. We come to you as people in need of the bread of life. And so we pray that this morning as we study your word, the bread of life would become clear to us, that we would clearly see Jesus as he is, not who we make him to be, but as he truly is. Show us your glory, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you haven't been with us for a few weeks, uh, just to get everyone on the same page, we've been in John chapter 6. John 6 begins with one of Jesus' most famous miracles, the feeding of the 5,000. Then last week, we took a look at what comes after the feeding of the 5,000, which incidentally is another one of the most famous miracles of Jesus when he walks on the water. Which brings us to today and the passage that we're looking at this morning. And that passage, as we heard read earlier, is John 6, 22 to 59. And this passage has come to be known as the bread of life discourse and is really one big conversation between Jesus and the crowd that was present at the feeding of the 5,000 just the day before. And this morning, as we take a look at this interaction between Jesus and the crowd, I hope that we see that despite all of the ways that we can get Jesus wrong, that he's patient with us. And if we truly come to him, he gives us a grace that will never let us go. So for the sake of our time this morning, we're going to organize this conversation very simply into two points, the misconceptions and the redirection. So the misconceptions and the redirection. So first, let's start by talking about the misconceptions that this crowd had about Jesus. 
And as we study these misconceptions, I'll just say it's really easy for us to look down on this crowd for the way that they're totally out to lunch here in terms of who they think Jesus is and what they think he came to do. But when we look at this passage rightly, I think we actually find not just the crowd, but ourselves under the microscope. We start to see ourselves in the faces of this crowd. The crowd in this passage shows us that our hearts are so blinded by the misconceptions that we craft about Jesus, that when we are actually met with the real and better Jesus, all we do is grumble. And we'll see that one by one, Jesus' answers to these misconceptions get this crowd pretty grumpy. And yet, we see the beautiful picture of the heart of Jesus. So what are the misconceptions? I think we can see the first misconception in verses 25 to 27. Before I read those verses, remember the context. These people were just miraculously fed by Jesus the day before. And then this is the next day, and they go to find Jesus across the sea. So with that in mind, I'll read verses 25 to 27 for us again. Starting in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So something we learn very quickly about Jesus is that he sees right through us. These people come to him after searching for him, and they're like, Jesus, when did you get here? And and did you notice Jesus' response doesn't actually answer their question? Instead, he gets to the heart of their motivation. You're not actually looking for me, Jesus says, in effect. You're simply looking for more bread. You see, these people saw Jesus as a genie. Or maybe better put, these people saw Jesus as a vending machine. They wanted Jesus, but only the vending machine version of Jesus, the kind that you can leave in the lobby or in the break room and ignore until you need a snack or something else from him. And this sounds super convenient, except for the fact that the vending machine version of Jesus isn't actually the real Jesus. What this crowd had done is they'd seen Jesus put his power on display, and they want him They want to use that power to get what they desire. They wanted Jesus, but they only wanted him insofar as they could use him to get things from him. We can almost think about this as a first century prosperity gospel of sorts, where they want Jesus, sure, but they want him because of what he can offer them. Their health and wealth gospel was more of a food and mood gospel. As long as they got their bread and Jesus kept them happy, they wanted him to stick around. And when they don't get what they want, verse 41 tells us that they grumble. But he cuts right to the heart of it and he says, you don't want me, you want the things I can give you, but those things don't satisfy. Don't work for the food that perishes, he says, but for the food that endures to eternal life. He's saying to them, I have so much more for you than what you want from me. But let's not forget, this isn't just the crowd we're talking about. These people are a case study of our own hearts. 
So let me ask you, how much does the attitude of this crowd reflect your view of God? How about your prayer life? Do you want a relationship with God simply because of the temporal, earthly blessings that he can give you? If you're anything like me, it's so easy to treat Jesus not as the one we truly want, as much as a stepping stone to what we really want. And when we don't, when we don't get what we want from Jesus, we can grumble, just like the crowd. So that's the first misconception, Jesus as a vending machine. What's the second misconception that these people had about Jesus? Let's look at verses 28 to 29. Verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. If the last misconception that the crowd had was Jesus as a vending machine, this one is Jesus as a guru. A guru is someone that we might turn to for wisdom, moral teaching, or general life advice. Modern versions of gurus are personal trainers, social media influencers, TED talkers, leadership coaches, and those sorts of people. I'm sure you're all well aware of the books, podcasts, masterclass series that are 10 steps for a perfect marriage. 10 steps for a perfect life, or perfect abs, or perfect conversation, or whatever you want to be perfect in. And these people in the crowd are treating Jesus just like one of those guys. They've got their iPads out, ready to take some notes. Give us the facts, Jesus. What are the 10 steps to pleasing God? It's like they're saying, okay, okay, we don't just want things from you, Jesus. So tell us, what do we have to do to do godly things? There's no sense of a relationship with Jesus here. They just want to know what to do. The modern word for this is legalism. Legalism asks, how do we do works that can please God without any regard for relationship with him? How can I curate my life and my behaviors to make God see me as more righteous, more holy, more worthy of his love? And yet Jesus has such patience with these people. They still don't really want him for him, right? At first, they only wanted him for the bread that he could offer them. Now they want him for the moral insight he could impart to them. But his patience is astounding. He calmly corrects them. He doesn't freak out on them, on their view of salvation being totally wrong, which it was. He gently answers them to tell them that there's nothing they can bring to the equation to please God. He answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. They're asking Jesus, what can we bring? And he says, only empty hands, only receive. It's all you can do. What good works do we try to bring before God to earn his favor? We may say we don't believe in a works-based salvation, but functionally, sometimes we live like it. The gospel is so very simple. Believe that the only works that can save you are Jesus' works. Come to Jesus with your hands empty, ready to receive. But we make it so complicated when we keep coming back to him with our hands full. 
We act like children bringing their parent their latest art project. We try to impress God with our feeble attempts at good works, and our hands are too full to receive his grace. We have got to come to him with empty hands today. So the two misconceptions we've seen so far are Jesus the vending machine and Jesus the guru. So this is the third misconception that we'll see that the crowd has, and that is Jesus the magician. This is verses 30 to 33. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Okay, so again, remember the context. If we're the crowd, we've just observed Jesus feed thousands and thousands of people, including ourselves, from basically a lunchable less than 24 hours ago. And then, in order to get across the Sea of Galilee, Jesus walks on the water. Now, here we are the next day, and these people have the audacity to say, okay, if you really are the one that God has sent, we want to see you perform a miracle to prove it. In the past, our great-great-great-great-grandparents were given miraculous bread. What do we get? Again, the patience of Jesus is mind-blowing here. They just got miraculous bread. I mean, come on. It might have been the last meal that they had. Now, we have the benefit of hindsight here. And as they say, hindsight is always twenty-twenty. Because we have all of this written down in our Bibles, we can let our eyes float up to the top of the page, see the feeding of the 5,000, then scan down a little bit, See Jesus walk on water. And truly, we can turn to almost any page in the Gospel of John and see the miraculous things that Jesus has done to put God's power on display. So, not so fast. Before we think that these people are dumb for having forgotten what has happened in the past few hours, remember that this crowd is revealing something that happens in our own hearts as well. You've probably heard Maybe even you said it yourself. Something to the effect of, if only God came down among us, then I'd believe that he exists. Or, I I prayed for it and it didn't happen, so I, I can't believe in God. And yet here, these people had God in the flesh walking among them. They witnessed a miracle literally the day before, and they still didn't believe. So why would we be any different? If you're a Christian, you're in a very similar position to the crowd. Because we get so distracted sometimes by asking for a big, flashy miracle that we can forget the miracle that has happened to us already. We're quick to lose faith when we don't see grand displays of God's power. And yet, if you're a Christian, the Bible describes you as having gone from death to life. If you are a Christian, your personal history with miracles includes your own resurrection. I'm not saying don't pray for supernatural things to happen. God is a supernatural God who can certainly break into your present situation and change things. 
But what I am saying is to adopt the posture of humility in your prayers for the miraculous. What I am saying is that if you're a Christian, you can pray in faith knowing that the most miraculous thing that could ever happen has already happened to you when you pass from death to life. And you have another resurrection promised to you in the future. What I'm trying to warn us against is this posture that, turns, that says to Jesus, do this miracle or else. Fix this thing, heal this person, or I'm out. That posture leads us to nothing more than grumbling. But with patience and kindness and grace, Jesus meets these people where they're at, as he does with us. And in his answer, he shows us himself. He doesn't play their games, but he turns their gaze to something greater, which we'll see in just a moment. So those are the misconceptions. We so easily see Jesus as a vending machine to get what we want, a guru to impart purely moral teaching so that we can be right with God, and we also see him as a, uh, as a magician to perform miracles on demand. So if those are the misconceptions, what's reality? Who is the real Jesus? Well, following the misconceptions in this passage, we see the redirection. This is how Jesus redirects the crowd. We'll begin reading in verse 32, which I know we just looked at, but we'll continue reading to verse 41. Verse 32. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Jump down to verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. When I was in high school, uh, my family went on a trip out west, which still today is one of my favorite vacations I've ever been on. We flew into Phoenix, Arizona, and for two or three weeks, we went to different national parks and other really neat places to see, and we ended up flying home from Los Angeles. And at each national park that we'd stop at, we'd all get out of the car, take a picture in front of the sign at the entry gate, and then pile back into the car and keep driving into the park. As a 16-year-old, I saw this as such a meaningless thing to do, uh, but now I appreciate the photos to remember that time by. But imagine if we had gotten our plane tickets, we'd rented our car, we'd driven to the Grand Canyon, scrambled out of the car, and taken a picture at the entry gate sign, hop back in the car, then turn around, go to a different national park, do the same thing at Zion, turn around, go and do a different thing, do, do the same thing at Yosemite National Park, turn around and come home. You, you tell me I'm missing out. You don't go to the Grand Canyon or Zion or Yosemite just to take a picture at the sign and then leave. You hardly even notice the sign except to celebrate that you've made it to the park. But what this crowd and what we tend to do with the signs that Jesus performs is just like what I described. They and we get so obsessed with the sign that we can miss what those signs point to. 
These people had been so enamored with the story of God giving his people bread in the book of Exodus that they missed what that sign might point to. And then when Jesus miraculously provides them with bread, they can't see past the sign. They're content to not just take a picture at the sign, but to say, oh man, where's another sign we can take a photo in front of? So Jesus, in his grace and in his kindness, redirects them. He shows them what they're missing. He tells them what these signs point to. This bread you want, it's supposed to point to the true bread that comes from God. It's supposed to point you to me, he says. I am the bread of life. The bread you want, it'll only fill you up until tomorrow, and then you'll want more. What I have to offer will satisfy forever. You see, Jesus is teaching them a theology of miracles without them even realizing it. He's teaching them that the sign is never the main point. The sign is helpful because of what it points to. But it doesn't stop there. This crowd is so enamored with what God did for their great-great-grandparents that they recall a story of God's faithfulness from the book of Exodus. So Jesus speaks to them in a way that they will understand. What's the language that Jesus uses to describe himself? In a way that unmistakably would have reminded them of how God introduced himself to Moses at the burning bush, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. There are seven times in the book of John that Jesus explicitly says, I am something. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and so on. And there are many more examples of Jesus saying, I am something, that are a little less explicit than those seven. But these I am statements of Jesus are supposed to cause the people he's speaking to to see Jesus saying, the God of your fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers, the God whose faithfulness you tell stories of, that's me. In the midst of their misconceptions about him, Jesus redirects the crowd to see who he really is, the great I am. He isn't just man, he's God. He's so much bigger than they realize. He isn't bread that will fill their stomach just temporarily. He is the bread of life that will fill their souls forever. Unfortunately, that sends them over the edge. Because that isn't the version of the Messiah they had concocted for themselves. The real and better Jesus didn't really seem better to them because they were too blinded by their misconceptions to see it. Verse 41 shows us their attitude toward Jesus. It says, So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Just as the Israelites grumbled in the wilderness at the bread that God had sent them in Numbers 11. The crowd grumbles at the true and better bread from heaven. So the story doesn't necessarily end on a positive note for the crowd. They continue grumbling, they get confused, and then they have an argument about, uh, among themselves about the things that Jesus has said. But this is where you and I have an opportunity to respond differently than the crowd does. If we tend toward the same misconceptions about Jesus, what do we do with his redirection? Take a look with me at verses 37 to 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's here that Jesus gives us an invitation. If we believe that he is who he says he is, and not who we and our misconceptions make him out to be, he loves to grant new life. If we recognize our misconceptions, how we so often simply see him as a vending machine to give us things we want, a guru to tell us things to do, and a magician to perform tricks for us, if we recognize that those are our natural impulse, and if we confess those before him, he'll be gracious to receive us. And did you note the beauty and comfort we see in the verses that we just read? For all that come to Jesus, for him. Not what, we get, not what we can get from him, but for him. Truly for him. For all those who come to Jesus, he will never let us go. Not only is this security a definitive statement from Jesus, but he also backs it up by saying that the very will of the Father is that not a soul that comes to Jesus will be lost. Not a soul that comes to Jesus will miss out on eternal life with him. Our natural reaction is to put up walls to this kind of love or to make excuses for why we can't have this kind of love. But Jesus won't let our excuses stand. When, he come, when we come to him, he meets us in the midst of our mess. He meets us in the midst of our misconceptions, in the midst of our excuses, and in the midst of our baggage. He meets us in our weakness, woundedness, and waywardness. His love for his people cannot be stopped. And his response to any objection that we could throw at him is, I will never cast out. No, wait, we say, cautiously approaching Jesus. You don't understand. I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. I know, he responds. Well, you know most of it, sure, certainly more than what others see, but there's perversity down inside me that's hidden from everyone. I know it all. Well, the thing is, it isn't just my past, it's my present, too. I understand. But I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. That's the kind of person I'm here to help. You don't get it. My offenses aren't directed toward others. They're against you. Then I'm the one most suited to forgive them. But the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You see, we put up our defenses to the only one who can say with 100% certainty, I know how deep your sin is, but my love for you is endless. Come to me. I will never cast you out. What does it mean to come to Jesus? What does it mean to come to the bread of life? It means laying down your own plan for your life. It means laying down your version of who you think Jesus is and letting him set up shop in your life. A few weeks ago, Pastor Benjamin used the image of renovation to illustrate what it means for Jesus to come into your life. When Jesus sets up shop in your life, he begins a renovation project. But the good news 
you don't have to start that project by yourself. You don't have to get cleaned up before you come to him. You can come to the bread of life this morning. That image of food that Jesus uses here is very intentional. The thing about food is that it's the very thing that sustains us. Jesus himself sustains us. But the amazing thing about this image, too, is that food isn't just for our provision. It's also for our enjoyment. Jesus doesn't just offer himself to us today as merely sustenance and merely provision, though that, could be, that would be more than we could ever ask for. The living Jesus offers himself to us to feast on and to enjoy. We have on offer from Jesus this morning eternal joy in him, eternal satisfaction in him. Come to the bread of life this morning. Come and feast on him, for he is the only one that can satisfy your deep hunger. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you don't leave us, but that you draw near to us in the person of Jesus. And that just as throughout the Old Testament you sent bread to your people, you sent the living bread, the bread of life to us so that we could taste of him and enjoy him forever. And so we pray that the words that are on this page in the Bible would come alive to us. And that we wouldn't be content to just let it sit on a shelf, but that, the, that we would taste of it. That we would believe it. And that through believing, we could have eternal life with you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.